Despite all the population and tourism growth on the north shore of Oahu in recent decades, the state and locals have done a really good job staving off commercial real estate development. In the seven-mile stretch from V-Land in the far north to Laniakea in the south, there's one gas station, one grocery store, about a dozen food trucks, which are all but permanent, and there's one hotel in that stretch of waves which houses your five restaurant options. Then, just two miles south of Laniakea, on Cam Highway, is the old plantation town of Haleiwa, the functional center of North Shore commerce. The iconic Rainbow Bridge marks your entry and your crossing of the Anahulu River that pours into the Wailua Bay, which houses the Haleiwa Boat Harbor and the eponymous and iconic right-hander and perhaps the most high-performance wave on the North Shore. It also marks the first stop of the Triple Crown of Surfing each year, an event that today's guest won in 2009. Haleiwa Town spills out south of the harbor and the kitschy and bright yellow and red sign for Haleiwa Joe's Seafood Grill is your first alert to the slightly more frenzied energy to come. Complete with multiple options for groceries, dozens of restaurants, which now includes sophisticated options, vegan fare, right alongside the traditional shave ice and barbecued chicken right off the back of a truck. There's even a couple of residential tracks, fine art galleries, and even a Starbucks. Despite this development in and around Haleiwa, or perhaps because of it, City Hall in Honolulu designated Haleiwa a state historic district and has protected 30 of the historic buildings to preserve the plantation-style architecture that was influenced by the Wailua Sugar Co. dating back to the late 1800s. In fact, the old town center could double as a western town if it weren't for the pastel paint colors and the wine bars in place of saloons. This nexus of surf, agriculture, and commerce is where you'll find Joel Centeo equally adept in the deadly serious waves of the North Shore, as well as he is equipped with work ethic and business savvy required to capitalize on both the rich agricultural and surf opportunities, Joel is one of Haleiva's best surfers to emerge from the 2000s. Today, Joel and I chat about how he's transitioned from pro surfer into team manager for his main sponsor, Hurley, and what his strategy was for selecting and cultivating talent in the Hawaiian Islands for the surf brand with the largest marketing budget. We also discuss what that landscape looks like now in light of the recent news of Nike selling Hurley off to Blue Star Alliance. But even more important than those things, Joel and his wife, Ashley, have recently entered a new phase of life as they've moved away from the beach into the hills behind Haleiwa Town onto a farm where they grow their own fruits and vegetables and are raising their own livestock and mapping out a life centered around sustainable farming and feeding a community. And that's precisely where we recorded this chat, on the deck of their farm overlooking a lush valley. We're sitting under a metal roof, by the way, so rain interrupts this conversation occasionally, but you'll be able to survive through that. So without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Joel and Ashley Centeo. Yeah, so we're um, we're just five minutes from Haleiwa Town in, in Wailua here, and uh, we live on a little zone that has, I don't know, maybe like 15 ag lots, and um, Cole Christensen, a big wave surfer, like he was kind of one of the first ones in here about, I think, 12 years ago, and then... Um, we just moved up here about three years ago uh, when Ashley, my wife's parents, uh, bought this lot. 
and um, the minute we got up here and saw this uh, this view, we were like, we got to find a way up here. And yeah. we lived right across the street in Haleiwa, you know, for the last like 12, year, 12 years prior. Yeah. Um, so it's just one of those places is so magical. So we wanted to get up here. I mean, you, you say it's five minutes from Haleiwa, but from Haleiwa town, but it's a world away. Exactly. It feels like it's a hundred miles away <laughs> i say that to everybody because it is like one of those things where like you can be in hollywood town kind of sitting in traffic you know mm-hmm. and stuff like that but in the minute you kind of come out and you head towards mount kaala and then you come through these two gates it's just like you're just like in like jurassic park or something it's totally like the beauty and and everything's just crazy yeah. yeah so um tell me about the property itself it's is it a farm yeah so this is uh it's a ag lot um and it's five acres so we have about four acres up top here and then there's the hillside and then we have access down to the river um which is the Kaukonahua stream and um you can hear it flowing right now actually mm-hmm. but um yeah so it's it's an ag lot yep what do you do with it what do you farm um i should actually let my wife answer this question but um you're welcome so to if she, you want to get on the mic <laughs> so she um so from the time we actually kind of moved up here uh first thing we did was um we redid this trailer here so um, like I said, it was just like we needed to get up, find a way to get up here, and so we were like, okay, like we kind of thought about doing maybe a tiny home first, and then we're like, maybe that's a little too small because we were living in a fourteen hundred square foot house. Okay. And um, so we kind of kept doing our homework, and then we came across this old office trailer that's fifty six foot by twelve foot wide. It was a trucking company, and they're selling it on Craigslist. So we. Um, we went down there, checked it out. We're like, okay, there's two bedrooms, you know, it's about 700 square feet total. And we're like, let's get it, you know? Um, so we had the guys come deliver it down here to the lot. We leveled it out. And then um, for the most part, we worked on it for about a year, over a year, just trying to get it livable, you know, because there was only just like a couple small windows on it. There was two two like rooms on each side that were just kind of offices. So we needed to make it and make it feel like a home. Um, so we added a roof, redid the siding, added windows, added plumbing. Um, and then the one thing about up here is fully off the grid. So there's no, um, there's no Hawaiian electric tie-in. So we have, uh, we have solar. So we have, uh, obviously, uh, powered by the sun and then we have an inverter and then we have batteries, batteries as well. So in the nighttime, we're living off the batteries in the daytime, we're living off the sun. Wow. Um, but what are we farming? Okay. So I got off the subject a little bit there, but, um, so we're farming, Right now, we kind of started with the, our garden. It's about um, 3,000 square feet, um, and we're doing all sorts of veggies. Uh, we do, I mean, we've done numerous things over the last year and a half, but uh, tomatoes have done well, kale, uh, collard greens, um, like spring mix, the lettuce. Um, what else do we do? Carrots, Carrots green beans, spinach. Green beans, um, so yeah, so that's all of mine and I'll, sh- I'll show you guys that in a second. Um, so we started with that and we're still doing that. So we're kind of ramping that up right now because we're in the process of actually starting a little uh, farm business, um, which is Beach to Farm, kind of our name of our Instagram and our thing. So we're gonna start to sell some of the stuff. Um, but then we got about 30, about 30 fruit trees in the ground. So we got mango, we got oranges, uh, lemons, limes, um, uh, ulu, which is uh, breadfruit. Um, avocado, uh, lychee. Were those, tree- those trees there already? No. You guys planted all that? So we planted all. Holy yeah. cow. We said mango, yeah. Um, um, and then we got, then we kind of, uh, 
So my brother-in-law, Ashley's brother, moved up here, and um, he's really into doing doing the animals. So we always kind of had like laying hens and stuff like that. Um, but uh, when he moved up here, he did a similar thing to us, and he lives on the other side of the lot where he redid an office trailer, made a little two-bedroom, and he moved up here, and he's really into doing the animals. So now we have sheep, we have pygmy goats, uh, we have chickens, we have ducks, uh, we have rabbits, uh, and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> gotta have the dogs yeah. um what's the plan for all that stuff is it to just harvest and sell and what about the animals yeah so um a little bit of both um so we uh we have sheep we have about 10 sheep now we just had like two four babies um but we harvested uh two of them recently and uh for meat and uh, that was pretty awesome and then we also did uh meat chickens so we did the uh cornish cross Cornish cross where we just raised those ones for, for meat, um, which is pretty awesome because, um, you know, they're about eight to ten weeks, and then we basically have, like, four months of chicken wow. in the freezer. Holy so cow. we harvested about 23 of those. That was about two weeks ago. Meat for our whole family. Meat for our whole family. Yeah. 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 What, um, I guess this applies to everything that you said, but who's doing all the work? Like, did you learn to butcher animals? Okay. Did you learn to retrofit the trailer? Like, what's... So, I've... We've had, like... we've had take a, photos along yeah, the way? We've had a ton of help along the way. Um, just from the time we built the trailer. Um, sorry, that's my dog. Um, no, it's cool. Um, it adds ambiance to the, to the recording. <laughs> totally. Get all the background, uh, too, I, if you don't I, mind. So, yeah, okay. um... With the trailer, my buddy Aaron Gold, like he's a big white surfer and, and a super amazing guy. He's helped us out a lot. Like he helped me kind of get the trailer in the spot and level it out. And then he was the first one to help me with the roof and just kind of show me basic carpentry stuff and, and all that stuff. So um, he helped a lot. And then with the farm stuff and the ag stuff, Ashley um, took a class. It's called Go Farm Hawaii. It's like a UH program. It's actually right down the road here in Wailua. And uh, it was like a six-month class where they teach you how to basically commercial farm, grow everything. They don't really teach you so much about the animals, um, but um, that kind of stuff we kind of just go on YouTube or oh, wow. and then just kind of learn about like you know what the sheep need or what the chickens need or the rabbits or whatnot. So, um, but yeah, just a lot of friends have helped us kind of build this thing out and and kind of taught me a lot. So like now I can kind of actually be pretty handy when before i definitely was not handy at all yeah <laughs> i could change a light bulb that's about it probably. sure yeah i would think now is a good time to be able to learn everything on your own with youtube and all of that stuff exactly yeah. so we're constantly on on youtube if there's something wrong with the sheep or the chicken or even the gardening sheep i mean ashley's learned so much about uh, about the the farm stuff and kind of doing the organic practices that like she she knows enough about that so now it's just youtube for everything else for the most part how do you even map out what to plant and how much of each thing to plant and what the market's needs are going to be? Was there a strategy or do you consult with somebody based on what soil types you have? And that, um, you want to answer this? Yeah, come on and get on the mic <laughs> if you don't mind. If it's okay with you, I don't know. No, of course. I'm going to gonna ask you about surfing too at some yeah. point. Yeah, <laughs> okay, no worries. I'm um, like, yeah. The GoFarm program I was in actually taught us all about that. Okay. Um, so it was... It, taught us the whole like introductory part process first and then um we got to learn like you know everything how um how long it takes to grow um tomatoes and carrots you know how many um how many seeds you need for how you know 
how, how much space you need. Yeah, um, exactly. And then, so I, I learned a lot of that um, through the school. And so now what I'm working on is, um, that's our nephew running. Oh, is it? Screaming. Sounds like an animal. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now I'm trying to learn just like how much we eat. You know, I tried to forecast like how much I thought we yeah. ate. Um, but now it's like how to have um, an endless supply of carrots. You know, okay. our kids eat tons of carrots. So um, how to not run out of that. Um, and then, so it. When we first began, it was just to feed our family. Um, my, like. You know, yeah. us, my brother's family, my sister's family, my parents. Um, but now it's kind of turned into um, we really love to get a business up and running and, and selling our produce and maybe even our meat and our, our eggs because um, a lot of people are really interested and they want to they want to buy from us. They want to buy from local um, producers. Um, so that sparked a big interest in like selling and, and maybe even doing tours um, just so people that are interested can really see more like, you know, what it entails and, and maybe get more people interested in what we're doing. Are you going to do cheeses? I would love to do cheeses, but I haven't gotten that far yet. Yeah, it's, like, it's a bit more machinery and processing and everything. Yeah, I think, I think so. We'll get there um, we've got, I mean, we didn't really, people are, are saying that we should um, milk our, our sheep and do um, cheese from, from them. Right. Um, but we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got the fruits and the veggies and the meat and the eggs. Joel wants to do bees. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, I'm not super into bees, but um, I love them. What's <laughs> been, what's the name of that documentary we watched, Lauren? Little Biggest. Yes. Oh, uh, little, little Biggest Farm? Biggest Little Farm. Biggest yeah. Little Farm, yeah. <laughs> so along those lines, what are, what are the challenges that you've run into? What are the biggest hurdles that you guys have hit? Um, well, I'd say with, uh, with, the, with the veggies, it was probably like the past and stuff and um farming you know, organically yeah yeah farming organically and and you know we don't want to use pesticides or different things to kill things so you got to figure out the the green way of doing it and um like i said her her class was they, they taught her how to do the organic practice so and her teacher actually lives like right down the street and he's doing like a big avocado farm um and he's right here but so he can always help us but um he's taught her a lot of how to handle yeah. most of them but I would, I would say like different things like um, zucchini, like I didn't learn how to grow zucchini at, um, at school. So that was something that we wanted to try because we love zucchini. Well, there's a lot of pests on our property that love to eat the zucchini. So we, I, I planted a um, hundred feet of zucchini and I didn't even get to harvest one. Oh my like gosh. every time there was, there was one like, ripe enough or not even ripe enough it was the bugs would get it so um i would say you know things like that things we didn't grow before or didn't do like there's a learning curve for sure um 
and actually I would say what's been hard too is is the rabbits mm -hmm. so we were farming rabbits for meat and and people think that that's a little bit crazy but it's actually super delicious like we haven't um, we didn't taste rabbit meat until we had our own oh wow and um, we kind of you know we we read a lot about it and, and heard it was you know it was really good for you so we thought we'd give it a try um, I grew up with a pet rabbit so that was a little bit <laughs> hard for me but um, I think the way we're doing it I, I think we're getting a little bit used to it um, um, but the thing with the rabbits we thought it was gonna be easy because everyone says like oh they re reproduce like crazy you know so that was gonna be the easiest thing to like be self-sustainable but they we we've had two litters and the female rabbit eats the babies really <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> how traumatizing crazy. is that for the kids it was they were baffled they were crying yeah and then we thought okay she got pregnant again and she did it again so you know we didn't learn that so we were reading and like it's actually a thing oh is it so so they say to get rid of that female if she keeps eating her babies she's gonna she may continue to do that so she's just not she's just a bad egg <laughs> she's just yeah. not good so that's been that's been weird so um then we were left you know when we started out we were left with one female and then she wouldn't get pregnant so we so now we're up to six females and two males and we still have not had a successful litter, litter. Um, so <laughs> that that to me is yeah it's unexpected yeah strange so we tried the whole um, you know calendar and putting them together and seeing if the male and the female will take and that still um, we still do not have a pregnant female so we and we actually we have the males separated and we have like a big rabbit colony Another thing that we really want to do is just like, you know, if we're farming these animals to, for meat, we just want to make sure that they're having like the best life they can possibly have. So we made this rabbit colony so they just run around, you know, all day having like a great, we think a great life. You yeah. know, they're not just caged up. Um, but the males, we did have them separated um, because we read that was the best. But I think we're coming to a point where we're just going to let the males in with the females and see if they can just naturally do it on their own. Okay. And then we can finally have some babies. Right. <laughs> uh, how does how do you guys navigate that um, the ethical part of the butchering? Like, did you guys grow up butchering? Did you have to learn that? Is it an issue even or does it feel natural? Mm. we did not grow up butchering any animals um i my my dad um used to fish a lot that's we had a, a fishing boat um my brother um fishes um a bunch too so that's kind of all it was my brother in college went to uh hilo so he started hunting a bunch so okay. that was kind of like our our in Joel and I were not like wanting anything to do with butchering the animals. Um, but so that was interesting. But now um, I haven't killed 
butchered. I haven't killed an animal yet. Um, my brother and Joel did a few roosters. They were mean, so he was okay with that. But it's it's kind of my brother kind of does the killing, and then Joel and I will help um, butcher, clean, and clean the meat. Um, but it is like a sad day. Are you gonna kill one eventually? I would assume I, it'll fall in your hands at some point. Yeah. How do you feel I, about it? I feel a little sad. Like it's not. Well, the chickens not so much, and probably not even the ducks. But the um the sheep like that's like like I love the sheep because they have more they personality. Have, or? Yeah, they're just like um gentle and their eyes are really sweet and they just like they're so trusting it feels sad yeah you know um so that one i don't think i don't think i'll ever have i don't think i'll ever do that unless like you know my kids are starving sure (laughs) other than that i'll let everyone else do that but i can clean it after it's done that's that's okay for me i don't want to eat lamb that same day we we process it or even chicken like we're just like i don't want to eat chicken that day interesting (laughs) it's it's, i think it's it's pretty crazy because um for being up here for such a short time like we never would have thought like we would be kind of doing doing that you know um but it kind of just came with the farm and like i said ashley's brother was not like he was into killing animals but like he was into raising animals and then you know for meat and, and whatnot so it, it is a tricky time when it comes time to like okay it's time to harvest 23 chickens you're kind of like okay like on a friday you're like all right that's okay 23 that's a lot of chickens you know and then but once you kind of get going and and honestly like initially the kids were kind of tripped out with with a few of them but for the most part like they kind of understand you know like what we're doing and for us it's like we want to be self-sustainable and and like you know like we we raise the sheep up from you know from the time they're little babies same with the chickens we know exactly what what we fed them and it's just kind of one of those things where it's like you know we're doing it all and it's like raised it all the way up and then you know we're feeding we're feeding the family mm-hmm. and it's like it's just part of life you know what i mean and they understand it more now because they see uncle tyler and myself actually kind of kill the animal but at the end of the day like there's dinner that night and and they understand where it comes from you know and it's like okay well this is the process on when it comes time to doing a sheep or or you know and harvesting a chicken yeah and the kids know that like um they're not allowed to kill any animal unless they're going to eat it right um and that i think is important for sure um you know we're we were like we tease like oh my gosh i hope we're not like raising serial killers or something well it's the opposite of that it's more humane to be honest like when i hear shane dorian or healy talking about hunting Mm -hmm. there's it's more ethical than what we're doing living in a city having zero connection to the land and zero connection Mm -hmm. to the animals that you're eating it's bizarre that we've worked ourselves into a society where you're that far disconnected from it you know Mm -hmm. and those guys talk about um you know obviously respecting the animal and respecting Mm -hmm. giving it a respectable death and all that sort of stuff that makes sense to me Mm -hmm. so i think it's actually logical to give the kids that sort of uh understanding of the life cycle and and our place in that you know 
there's a tremendous amount. It seems like this would be an endless amount of work. Like you both could work all day, every day and not really keep up with everything. Mm -hmm. Are you trying to maintain day jobs during this? Or is this just aiming towards selling everything eventually? And this would be the business selling all the produce eventually. Yeah. Um, that's a funny question, but yeah. So, I mean, actually, you know, right when we kind of moved up here, like actually kind of transitioned out of like her full-time job, which was kind of managing uh, rentals and cleaning rentals. And, and, you know, she had her, her sisters kind of helping her run point on that. Um, but so she was pretty much full-time working. And then when she got up here, it was like, you know, she wanted to kind of do, do the farm thing. Like, obviously for me, like I still, I mean, technically have a full-time job. Like I work for Hurley, I do sales, marketing, and then also the team managing. Um, so, but obviously like we got pretty laid back schedules for the most part with that. So it gives us enough time to kind of work on, work on the farm and, and do different things. But like for the most part, like she's constantly out there, like working the garden, like pretty much day in and day out, right. you know, and then, and then her whole family comes up. She has her sister, her three daughters. Um, my brother-in-law has two, two sons, mom and dad come down and it's like, on Sundays, we kind of get after the farm and love, whether it's like fixing a fence or fixing a water line or doing water lines or working in the garden, like everybody kind of works together and does it, you know? So it is very time consuming, like, you know, but for us, like it was a long process just trying to get up here, like just working and getting up here because we're like living in Haleiwa half and like, oh, let's maybe go to the farm today and go work on the trailer, you know? And then, so it took a while, but once we got up here, we were able to really like get after what we needed to just like get the trailer done and then like you know like five acres with like what we call california grass or guinea grass like the guinea grass gets like six foot tall like one rain like you know and it rains every night here like it grows like a few inches so it's just like getting the property to actually like look like how it is like around our zone like mm -hmm. is like a lot of man hours like on a machine or like digging with a pick and then yeah so it's just you know, it's pretty much endless work. Well, in addition to just maintenancing the things that you said, you're building a pool, yeah. you're building the, there's lumber basically everywhere around the property. So you're building stairs here. So yeah, you're also building it out. Um, talking about your work with Hurley, yeah. you, I want to talk about um, conversation that comes up on the podcast a lot is pro surfers transitioning out of pro surfing into a life beyond that um number one when did you decide that your pro surf kind of competitive pro surf career had come to an end what did that look like for you um well, it was a lot of people of, don't accept it exactly you know what i mean is what i'm oh, saying yeah, and, and they of, just hang on yeah and a lot of surfers i mean wait too long you know totally I mean, to like decide to move on or figure out what the next step is job wise you know um for me i was actually super blessed because um when I kind of stopped being a full-time pro, um, I actually got better. Um, meaning like I actually started actually winning, like, you know, I won Haleiwa, like got second place the following year. I started doing really, really well on the North Shore while I was actually working, you know? So Pat O'Connell came to me probably 10 years ago. And it was kind of one of those transition period periods at Hurley where we had to like let go of a few people. And, um, and, I actually thought I was gonna lose my job. It was like 07, it was kind of right around that like, you know, recession time and the, the market failure. And, um, you know, Pat, I heard so that- So you're, we're, you're riding for Hurley, traveling, Riding, pro traveling, surfing. doing the, the full on QS and being the pro surfer thing, yeah. And then, um, 
Pat called me and I thought it was literally a call that I was going to get probably let go. And um, he just said, you know, I remember the conversation because I was like, we had just moved into our brand new house down in Haleiwa. And then and, and I was just thinking, wow, like we just got here and like literally I'm like not going to be surfing anymore or, or going to get let go and, and not be able to pay this mortgage. And um, I just remember him saying, I just said, hey, like, is this the call? Because there was like a little kind of silent moment at the beginning of the conversation. And I said, hey, Pat, I mean, Pat are really close and get go way back. And I was and I was like, hey, Pat, is this the call? Like, you know, and he's like, oh, no, no, no. And he just kind of said, like, hey, like, just letting you know, like, you know, we're going through a little transition period. We have to let, let a few people go. But we want I want you to take on a little bit bigger role, you know, and like I want you to like help out around Hawaii, kind of meaning like taking on like team manager roles. And I was kind of like, yeah, no problem, like for sure, you know. So that was about 10 years ago. And, and um, like I said, there was a, a gap there from like that time till when I started doing the team managing and working for Hurley as well as surfing for him when I actually kind of started doing really well and, and won, won Haleiwa and uh, just was doing well as like a Hawaii regional surfer, you know, when Triple Crown came around or surfing pipe and backdoor and all that, um, that was kind of my deal. Um, it wasn't until six years ago in um, 2014 when I actually got kind of uh, like a full-time role with Hurley as far as the work. And that's when it kind of like the surfing thing slowly kind of stopped right then where I stopped competing totally. But I was like kind of more taking on a full-time role where I was doing sales for Hurley here in Hawaii and then um, marketing events and kind of the, wearing a couple hats. Yeah. Why do you think that your surfing improved once you relinquished the career? I think it was one of those things where um, I think just a little less pressure, you know, like... I think for me, like, when I was 17, 18 years old, like, you know, Bob had kind of sponsored me, and I, I started writing from Hurley, Hurley right, right away, and it was just like, from the get-go, it's straight onto the WQS, you know, and it's just like, just a, a grind, and you're basically coming out of, like, amateur competitions, and then going straight in and competing against men and QS, and, you know, I think it just kind of turned, turned into just, like, a, just a grind out there, you know, and, like, ups and downs you know a couple good results but never really enough came close to making the tour like got like 27th i think one year like at that time they're taking 16 to go onto the tour but it just kind of got like a little bit overwhelming and i think it was just a little bit of pressure for sure and then um the minute i kind of got the working role i feel like it was like okay well maybe i don't need to like be such a gnarly like pro surfer now i don't really necessarily need to get the results if i'm actually doing my job and running the team and building a program here in hawaii for hurley like i'm all good you know so i don't know or maybe i just got older and stronger and and yeah got better but i think no but i think yeah. it is the headspace thing because you see yeah. that happen all the time mm -hmm. you know as soon as somebody stops trying is when they start or yeah. stops trying is when they do well in contests yeah. um so how do you based on what you learned there how do you communicate that and convey that to youth that you work with who's actually in the grind yeah you know well for me with with the kids that i've kind of sponsored and you know like for example like eli hanneman everybody knows eli hanneman kind of one of the top up-and-coming surfers um from my like i literally sponsored him when he was seven years old you know um but just in general with all the kids that i sponsor and kind of coach or whatnot and try and give them guidance you know is um trying to get them to understand that like hey like the surfing thing is is amazing but at the end of the day like you know when you're 17 18 years old like it's not not everybody's gonna be a pro surfer you know so like 
and it's it's hard to tell the kids that but i try and relate that to the parents more so because like the parents are kind of usually the ones that are like oh they think their kids maybe going to be the next john john or or whatnot but in reality it's like you know maybe not going to happen and and it's hard but you know i think what's going on right now in this generation a little bit is like a lot of times from a young age these parents pull their kids because they want their kid to be a professional surfer when they're 10 11 years old and then they you know they're in homeschool and all they're doing is surfing and then you know a little bit of um they get a little bit ahead of themselves and and you know forget about like what real life is going to be like if they don't become a professional surfer and um so it's just it it's a it's a tough one you know i would think that's the toughest part of the job to be honest yeah exactly and and just trying to get them ready for what life is after exactly you know and 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 that's my biggest thing you know with a lot of the kids um that i do raise up is just kind of helping them to just be good humans for one you know and and um obviously help them to get better at surfing as well too and and teach them what i know just you know growing up and doing the qs's and coming through the amateur rankings through the pro rankings and competing in triple crown you know and teaching them my lot of knowledge of like all the spots around the north shore and stuff like that um why do you think pat enlisted you for that role um hmm it's a good question i think i don't know i think it was just one of those things when as i was kind of raised up and came up like everybody always looked at me as like you know smiley happy guy and like you know like and like always thought of me like oh you're gonna be like a hurly lifer you know what i mean and i think he just saw value in 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 my approach and uh, on in life and as a surfer and he felt like you know like if if we kind of snag joel to be like our team manager like he could build this program in hawaii and make it special um so i think he just saw potential in me maybe I remember when it happened and I thought it was a good fit. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, yeah. oh yeah, he represents Aloha and like obviously has done his time on tour and understands the competitive side of it. Um, what was your what was your plan for that program in terms of like which athletes? Why? I mean, Eli Hanneman's an obvious pick. Yeah. You, anybody would sponsor that kid. But what was your overall, I think at that time, obviously budgets were a lot looser and so you could kind of have a free surf guy or multiple free surfs guy one free surf guy on maui kai barger or whoever it was at the time and Mm -hmm. then you got the contest guys but what was your strategy at the time um well it was it was one of those it was a time when we like you said we had the freedom you know money wise and obviously those nike days were just the good old days um but we just you know for the most part like it was just about not to say like I, I I mean I could see talent you know but like there's something I saw with Eli there's something I saw with Baron Mamiya you know Baron was one that I I sponsored when he was 11 years old and there was just like he had something special about him I mean just in in waves of consequence at backdoor like he was getting six foot crazy backdoor waves when he was like 12 years old you know so I saw the talent and um you know but in general as with the program itself like obviously it got bigger and bigger later you know as we kind of took on bigger athletes um i think what year was that that was when julian and carissa and michelle and all those guys came over from nike that like it was just a time when like hurley was the brand and we were able to kind of 
add whoever we wanted to, you know. And like at that point, like most people didn't know that, but we were just on the verge of actually signing John John, which was kind of huge for our program at the time because like we kind of never really had the marquee name. Yeah, we had like Rob Machado, but then all at once we ended up getting all the Nike athletes because Nike's like we're gonna push out of like the surf thing. We're gonna put it all in the Hurley, and then so we ended up with signing John and then like getting Julian and Toledo and all these guys. So it was just kind of a crazy time, but. Just to go back to like with the Hawaii guys, it was just kind of looking for people like Koa Smith or Kai Barger, like you said, like just obviously great competitors, but just great surfers, kind of cool, um, cool vibes to what they're about. You know, their personalities are pretty insane. And, and um, I feel like we have like, well, it's interesting because program's changing just a little bit right now. Well, that's my <laughs> next line of questioning too, but yeah, go ahead. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just changing a little bit, but we were able to have different niches like, you know, Koa Smith, just a unreal guys who can go to namibia and get you know a 40 second barrel but like you can put him on a webcast and he'll just make you laugh all day or, or whatnot and then also having the john john florence who's just like the best surfer in the world you know what i mean obviously like for us here in hawaii like and being somebody that like you know represents hurley hawaii on the on the work as the workforce you know sales sales and marketing like having john having carissa like it, it just it's, it's easy for me to do my job you know but it just it is i think it just kind of clicked just because you know um the nike thing and then um just find a way to get those guys well my next question is uh is it even equitable to have team riders period but that many first of all and it seems to me like we're gonna find out the answer to that question with this you know Hurley being sold off to Blue Star, but um, even Rip Curl. It was just today, I think, in the news. Alana's off Rip Curl. Maddie Wilkinson got dropped. Um, we're seeing it everywhere throughout the industry, and I'm wondering if that was a 10 and 20 year test that we ran, an experiment where I could see almost in a sense where Nike for basketball has marquee players, yeah. LeBron, Jordan. And those guys make millions of dollars. Everybody else just gets paid a salary, basically, from the NBA. I wonder if that's kind of a new model moving forward. Well, you'll still have your John Johns and your Carissas, but we don't need 20 guys making 100 to 200 k a year. Yeah. You know, we got guys traveling the world tour. They're making contest earnings. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have a little bit of sponsorship, and then two or three of them that are in the top 10 make millions of dollars. Yeah. But I'm wondering how equi equitable is it for the brand at this point to pay that many people? for marketing what are your thoughts yeah it's i mean that's a tough question but you know at, at the end of the day like i think what's going on in our industry is i mean obviously everybody knows rip curl was recently sold um and then you know obviously nike sold hurley you know i think at the end of the day we're all owned by uh corporate companies and um and you know nike was really awesome because they allowed hurley to kind of do what they needed to do have the best surf team and then also probably foot the bill you know what i mean obviously what's what's kind of going on right now with um with with nike selling hurley to blue star is like i understand where these guys are coming from am i am i stoked on what's going on and like 30 30 athletes get let go january 2nd not really i i, I don't agree with it but at the end of the day like i understand like for the Blue Star guys, they're coming in and they're looking at it and like, okay, well, you guys do this amount of business, you guys have this amount of athletes and spend this much on marketing. It probably doesn't compare to what sales are. So 
they come in and they're just looking at numbers in the bottom line and and they they made cuts based on what what was I think they have an equation for how they run every other business in their portfolio, mm-hmm. and they're putting Hurley into that equation. They go, "This is the way the math works." Yeah. Doesn't matter if you and I have a culture, yeah. you know, yeah. of surfing that we yeah. want to like fund. Yep. They don't care. Yeah. So that, but but the the question kind of remains is, are we going to have sponsored surfers in five years from now and ten years from now? Like, does that model make sense for brands, or does it only make sense for sense for small brands? Yeah, I, I, I think it makes total sense. Um, I think what happened probably the last five, the five years, is is it got super top heavy. So anybody that was on tour was making a lot of money. You know, I mean, six figures easy, some up to over a million bucks. You know what I mean? And I think that's the problem a little bit because let's be real, like these companies, it's not like they're not making money. They're not profitable. It's like they're they're just spending probably too much money on it. So to talk about like maybe like all these guys, you know, not necessarily having the smaller athletes as well, surf athletes. But I, I think like if you kind of start to not have the bigger ones, you can actually reel it back in and have the smaller ones. And like I said, from the beginning, like with Bob and Hurley, like we never really had a big name until, until I mean, Ramachado, yeah, was huge and obviously like, you know, a face of Hurley from the get-go. But we never really had huge names until like what I spoke about with as far as when Nike kind of said, hey, we're going to let Hurley focus on the surf thing. You guys have Julian, you have John. And that was, what, five or six years ago, you know. But before then, it was kind of smaller names. Like, yeah, we had Ace Bucken or, yeah, we... Um, Malloy Brothers. Malloy Brothers yeah. and stuff like that. We never really had big names, but yet we were still very successful and, right. and, and did well. So to answer your question, I mean... Well, there's another detail I'd love to hear you weigh in on, which is, does it make any sense at all? Or does it benefit anybody other than the brand to pay a kid, let's say a 13-year-old kid, thousands of dollars a month to surf? I don't, I question whether the kid's a better surfer with that. You know what I mean? Like, because when you look at the guys who are winning titles now, they're guys who had a lot of grit in their childhood. The Adrianos, I mean, Adriano won one, but even Gabriel Medina, Idolo, you know, like they weren't big moneyed contracts. They kind of showed up when they were 16 or 17 or 18 or something. And that all of that grit has helped them thrive once the earning starts. But I look at plucking a kid from a really young age and kind of catering him along the way, he or she, and like... Don't have to worry about figuring out rental cars. Don't have to worry about hotels. Don't have to worry about your diet. We're going to bring a diet. I don't know that that serves them well in the end. Mm -hmm. It serves them well up until like 18. But then when you're on tour grinding it out for a world title, there's a difference between winning a world title or just staying in the 10 to 20 range, you know, on tour. What are your thoughts? Can you do both things? It's just a hard one. I think because from the time I kind of took on being a team manager for here in Hawaii, it was like wanted me to kind of get the, the best kids you know and um but to your point and, and like this can kind of stem from like me and like my crew of surf, surfers that i grew up whether it's fred patachia or sean moody or jason shibata kekoba Calso. it's like it's one of those things where it's like you can look at adriano and you can look at a lot of brazilian guys that kind of are raised up with basically nothing they all they have is like is all they have is surfing and and how they're going to get to this place and how they're going to win and make a check. 
coming from Hawaii, like, it's totally different. Like, you know, like, we're all pretty blessed for the most part. Like, most of us grew up on the North Shore. I mean, I grew up on the South Side, but, like, like parents had decent jobs, like, nice house, like, you know, like... Blessed with good know, waves, too. Blessed with good waves, you know? Um, but I definitely question that, like, as you kind of move forward and, and become a pro surfer and you're, like, kind of traveling to places that you're, like... Oh, I don't necessarily want to be here. Or like, exactly. I'm not really stoked to be here. I'm not really happy to be going on a plane to Brazil right now to go compete in a in a five star, and it's gonna take me a day and a half to get to. And then you get there, and the waves are knee high. You're just kind of like, what am I doing? Like, you know. And and whereas like that that Brazilian kid that kind of came up with nothing is super hungry, you know. And I actually use that a lot with a lot of the kids, whether it's Baron or like a lot of the up and coming kids from Hawaii. I said, hey, like. You guys need to be extremely hungry if you want to make this make this happen, you know. So, I try and drive in the grittiness because I say, hey, like, look at look at like the Brazilian storm. Now look at these up and coming kids. They're like they're extremely hungry. Like, I don't care like if you're amazing at, at pipeline, you know. But if you want to go and make it to the highest level and be on the world tour and win titles, then like you're gonna have to get like pretty hungry, like like an Italo or like a like a like a Gabriel, yeah. you know. Um, so. But it's a it's a tricky one because you know these why the brands, especially here in the US, want these kids is because you know Eli Hanneman could be their next John John. Yeah, of course. You know, and, and that's why we invest in them at an early age. You know what I mean? Are we turning the dial on Eli Hanneman? Probably, maybe right now because he has a huge following on Instagram and and he's a great kid and he represents the brand well. Like so, like now we're starting to see probably value in it. You know, but yeah. To answer your question the bigger picture like it's a it's a tough one because like you know i i see the sell side because i've been doing it now for five or six years now and like you know john john i can honestly say like his product sells he turns the dial you know but having 20 athletes i don't know i don't know right but a lot of companies are paying for the 20 athletes hoping one of them becomes the john john obviously um shoot Loud. We got a little rained out here and caught up on our beer intake. But when the rain let up, I asked Joel if he still finds time to surf. But yeah, I have to find time just for my wife's sanity too. Like <laughs> if I'm not surfing, like I'm grumpy, you know. So and and like that's the beauty of of living right here and this close to the beach. It's like you know, and in the winter we have six to eight months of pretty good waves or nonstop waves. That's for sure. So um, I'll find I'll find time to surf and then. You know, mixed in with, with working and taking the kids to school and farming. Like, yeah. we find the time, for sure. Have you ever seen him grumpy? He said he gets grumpy if he doesn't surf. <laughs> I've never seen him anything other than smile. Yeah. Uh, he gets grumpy. Really? <laughs> but rarely. And that's definitely due to not surfing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How is it raising kids up here? I mean, this has to be the most... I When you guys are looking at... I mean, raising kids on the North Shore is good no matter what, I would imagine. But how important was this move onto the farm and into this space? Or how much did they factor into that I, that decision? Um, it's got to be the best yeah, place in the world like, for them. I mean, as far as raising the kids, like... So, we, our kids both grew up across the street from Haleiwa. Like, pretty much the best ground wave in the world. Park right there. Like, we're basically two minutes and you're at Haleiwa, the surf spot. Um, amazing spot for sure and like like I said we built that house 12 years ago and um, but 
like I said, there's something about when you come up onto this lot, and um, and just for the kids in general, you know, it's like, yeah, they're on their iPads sometimes or whatnot, but for the most part, like, they're raised up on the land, they have little dirt bikes, like, Asher and Noah are trying to, like, grow their own, like, vegetables right are there. Are they under really? Their, under their little playground, you know, so... Because they've seen what you guys are doing with the farm, and they want to replicate that <laughs> on their own? Exactly. That's insane. So it's just, uh, for me, it's like, there's no better place for them to, to be raised up because, like, they're around the animals. Yeah. And if they come home from school, like, they're immediately outside. They're not on TV. Like, like I said, they have iPads, but they're not on it as much as other kids, I don't think. No. Um, but it's just a special place for them just because, like, I don't think a lot of kids are raised up, like, on land like this or Definitely. raised up outside, yeah. you know? Or just, like, being able to know how to live. You know? They do. Like, really know how to live. No, I mean, we're not preppers or anything like that, but, you know, it, we've, as a human race, got so far away from, you know, our food. Yeah. And really, like, living. So, I mean, hopefully, like, they're going to know how to build their own house, you know, and farm their own food. Yeah. And whether they choose to or not is irrelevant. But they just having the skill set. Skills. And yeah. and I think um, that's gonna be it's like a very valuable life lesson. For sure. Right? Like it's hard, hard work. Like farming is so, so hard. Like Joel was saying I I was cleaning vacation rentals, you know, and that's hard. You know, that's mm -hmm. hard work. But farming is so much harder. Is it? <laughs> I think it's like the sun and the heat and like just it's hard on your body, but it's just there's something about growing your own food and putting your hands in the soil and you know, yeah, doing it yourself and you know, hopefully, like our kids will be better humans, like. Well, all of the discipline involved with it, mm -hmm. there's a bunch of life lessons that you learn just from doing it mm -hmm. that serve you no matter where you go. Yeah. So, um, Final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? Are you still riding Arakawa's? No, I'm actually riding um, Kerry Takoro. So I've been riding for like HIC Surf Shop for um, almost 30 years now. <laughs> so I went from like John Carper to... Uh, to Arakawa to carry to Coral for five years and then back to Arakawa for ten years and then now uh, Eric's kind of moved on and just kind of doing his own his own stuff and so now I'm back on carry to Coral so my last surfboard I rode was uh, um, 510 uh, hyper model 18 and a half two and a half inches thick um, let's go to the little secret spot down the road <laughs> when <laughs> uh, Two days ago, before the before, before the wind, the north wind came and the the rainstorm came, um, just right down there in Mokalia. Nice, um, but yeah, awesome. So the rain again. So well, now we gotta worry about the power now, guys. Now I'm just kidding. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Today was a nice sunny day. Our system is fully recharged. Okay, good. We're all good. But this morning, those are no the things you have to worry about. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a generator just in case? A backup. Yeah, yeah, so um, I do have a generator, and it, and it actually powers the whole the whole zone. Um, but that thing died uh, about two weeks ago. Um, and I don't know, how long have you guys been here? 
A week. A week. Okay, yeah. so you guys missed. So the first two weeks of January was super rainy and super windy, and we had no generator and there was no sun. So oh my god, we were we our Arizona was dead a lot. Roughing it. <laughs> so we were kind of roughing it, but then you know the last week or two is real sunny. And then we recently upgraded the system now, so we have we have 18 uh, solar panels on the roof. Nice. And we got three batteries, um, so now we're like actually. Awesome. And my generator's about to get fixed, so now that'll be a generator's backup. So good. Well, thank you for allowing us out on the property. This is insane. Appreciate it. I'm only gonna feel one way If I can't stay With you From a tree of forest grass It could turn into anything By the way, the day that this episode is being released, February 19th, happens to be Joel's birthday which I think is the first time that that's ever happened in our 311 episodes of this show. So happy birthday, Joel. Thank you for participating. Thank you for including us out on your incredible property. I'm highly jealous. And uh, what a wonderful place to raise a family. So congrats on that, you guys. And for everybody who would like to see photos of all of this stuff that Joel and I discussed, it is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. I link to Joel's Instagram and his farm's Instagram from there as well you can also leave a comment in the comments section for joel and you can also follow us on surf splendor on instagram that's a great way just to chime in on any of these conversations it's also a great place to share this show with friends um just tag them in a post or dm it to them uh that's how we help this show grow the larger our audience is the easier it is for us to attract great guests like joel centeo And then um, another way to help strangers find it is to rate and review it in whatever app you listen in. So I always appreciate that. It just kind of filters us and pushes us through the algorithms to ensure that strangers find it. And I think that's it for this week. Um, And I've got an episode for you next week that I'm really excited to share with Akila Ipa. So if you're not familiar with that name, look him up in this next week. That'll be your homework. And... um, I'll provide all the context that you need as we go into that episode at the beginning of next week. So look forward to that. And I'll be back on Friday with Chaz for an episode of The Grit and then Tuesday with Scott Bass for Spit. So lots going on. I hope that you are well. And of course, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Wishing you the best. Hoping that you get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on. Mm-hmm.